0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gedigoland. Land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrible Land. Today, the pervasive myth about suicide over Christmas.
1: If you or someone you know has high blood pressure, then we've some important news.
0: Fancy a bath in something Salty.
2: We're not talking about jars of Vegemite, we're talking about bathtubs of Vegemite to get this level of vitamin B3 into your system.
0: This is a bit of a red herring that I'll explain more soon, but a hint is it has to do with your eyes. And speaking
1: of eyes, a new study into the commonest cause of irreversible blindness, age related macular degeneration, has found a genetic link with Alzheimer's disease. But before you panic, it doesn't go in the direction you might think, but it does have implications for drug development to treat macular degeneration. The senior researcher involved was Professor Ruth Fricka Schmidt, who's at Copenhagen University Hospital. Welcome to The Health Report.
3: Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, this is largely, I mean, the story here is focusing on how we metabolize fat and the genes involved in that.
3: Yeah, that's right. What we uh, see in this uh, study from uh, from Denmark is that, that the local cholesterol transport across layers in the eye is very important for a well-functioning eye.
1: And the reason for that being that cholesterol, well, we think of cholesterol as being bad, but cholesterol is really yeah. important to stabilize the membranes of cells and their integrity.
3: Exactly. Cholesterol is important for all cells. It's... Uh, major constituent in the membranes, it's very important as, you know, a precursor of our bile salts and hormones, but too much of it in the blood is bad because it goes to the wall and gives us atherosclerosis. But with regard to the eye, the lipid transport, the cholesterol transport is important as a fuel of nutrient to the cells of the eyes that, that gives us the vision, so that's another story. And what we did... Just yes. before
1: you go on, the macula, yes, which sits on the retina, which is like the film screen at the back of your eye, the macula is where we actually see our most detailed vision and it consumes a lot of energy. It's a very energetic mm. part of the eye.
3: That's right. This disease, macular degeneration, the reason why we do research in it is that it's a very common Common disease in persons above uh, the age of 65, So it's important to understand the bio- biology behind it.
1: And you were looking at this family of genes called APOE.
3: Yeah, it's actually one gene. Uh, it's a gene that is very well, important. It's for a family for of chole-
1: variants of these genes, I should say, yes.
3: Yeah, yeah. Changes in the gene, and many of us have changes in the genes. It's important for cholesterol transport in all over the body.
1: Now, so you looked at the variants of APOE mm. and relating mm. that in a very large group of people in Denmark to the risk yes. of macular degeneration.
3: Yeah. And what, what we did observe was that these variants, uh, changes in the gene, that they seem to uh, interfere with the normal cholesterol transport over the layers in the eye. So it seems that these variants... Um, does uh, this that the cholesterol is accumulated I- accumulating in the wrong places in the eye, and thus contributes probably to the vision loss in this macular degeneration? That is our main finding.
1: Now, you, there are, there are various codes for the variants, um, mm. and. People might have heard of a variant, well, if they listened to a health report regularly, they would have known about a variant yeah. called APOE4, which is yeah. associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. That's right, um, yeah. But this wasn't the variant of the gene that you found associated no. with macular no, gene right.
3: Yeah. Actually, uh, you're totally right that the uh, APOE4 variant is associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. It's been known for many years, uh, but this variant is actually associated with less risk of macular degeneration. And what we also see after this variant is that other, other variants in this exact uh, same gene, um, it's also the issue that those that are associated with increased risk for uh, eye disease is uh, protective for Alzheimer's.
1: So th- this does your head in a little bit because the, na- the natural yeah. assumption would yeah. be that they both go together, yeah. but they yeah. go in opposite but, directions.
3: Yeah, and that actually it gives uh, really good biological meaning um, and it's going to be too uh, complicated to discuss here, but it, it does give very good biological meaning. So what our uh, results are, suggest is that that it's very important to study the, the local cholesterol transport one thing is what it does in the brain one thing another thing is what it does in the eye and that is the the other the other very important point of our study with regard to novel drug development because what happened when when uh, uh, you know when these variants that seem protective, not the Epsilon-4 or the APOE-4. These variants I'm talking about, they seem protective for Alzheimer's. The drug industry were, of course, very interested in designing drugs that mimicked these uh, uh, effects because if we could get a drug for dementia, that would be wonderful. But it
1: would cause, it would risk macular degeneration.
3: Yeah. So our take on this is that it's very important before you decide on a drug target to develop novel drugs, that you look around what does these genes do for all common diseases? Before you decide, then that will give you an overview of what potential side effects there will be of EDWOC.
1: And just to explore this a little bit further, was it equal in men and women and in different racial groups?
3: Uh, yes, in men and I can talk about the different sexes. Yes, it were it was similar uh, associations there. The cohorts we are exploring here in Denmark are predominantly of white ancestry. So I cannot say whether these findings will be generalizable. Um, However, ApoE uh, effects are very well known in different uh, ethnic uh, populations. So we would assume that it's a general uh, effect, but we can of course not state that.
1: And of course, it cuts the other way, which is a drug that might treat ma- macular degeneration. Targeting this might might actually increase the risk of uh, Alzheimer's.
3: Um, you could say if you focus very much on these uh, variants that we have described here. Um, I mean. My, our suggestion is more that we focus on the normal form of ApoE and, uh, and uh, kind of correct, for instance, for, for Alzheimer's, uh, the four type is the risk one that we kind of try to make drugs that mimic a normal form, form of ApoE, the one that most of us have. That would be my take on that or suggestion.
1: Now, some of these variants that you found are quite rare. If you took Mm. 100 people with macular degeneration, how much of the macular degeneration in these people would be explained by these variations in APOE? Uh,
3: Very little of some of the variants. But for more common forms, uh, for instance, the epsilon, the ep, the four form that is bad for dementia, that is uh, a rather common variant that is good for macular degeneration, and that would be up to 25% of us that that actually have that in one form.
1: And just finally, does the, do the epidemiological data on Alzheimer's disease and macular degeneration match your findings? In other words. If you've got macular degeneration, on average, your risk might be lower of getting Alzheimer's disease.
3: You can't say it like that. The the only thing you can say is that the genetic background caused by this APOE gene, that's the findings we see, that it's opposite directions for these variants.
1: Fascinating research. Thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, you're welcome.
1: Professor Ruth Fricker schmidt is in the Department of Clinical Chemistry at the University of Copenhagen Hospital. This is the Health Report.
0: If you spend time in the wellness space or like to read the back labels of expensive skincare, you may have heard of a substance called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, or NAD for short. It's a hot ingredient at the moment in in products that promise longevity most of the hype comes from studies done in mice so you might be tempted to write it off but there is promising research being done in humans with a very specific condition dr flora Hugh is one of abc's top five scientists for 2022 she's an optometrist clinician scientist and she's put this story together
4: i had had just my normal routine eye test about six months earlier i kept complaining about headaches I had been to the doctors, were not migraines, were not sinus-related, and for weeks I kept saying to the optometrist, I cannot get rid of this headache.
5: Who doesn't get headaches? But it's good Fei Emma persisted in getting it checked out. She is one of 300,000 Australians with glaucoma, and most of the time glaucoma comes with very little symptoms, meaning that it can fly under the radar until you get your eyes checked. I was quite
4: shocked at the time. I always thought glaucoma was a disease for older people, so it was not something that crossed my mind. It did take me by surprise at the time.
5: Glaucoma is one of the leading causes of blindness around the world, where we lose the nerve cells in the eye, called the retinal ganglion cells, whose job is to communicate between the eye and the brain for us to see. About one in 50 Australians will develop glaucoma in their lifetime. But this actually jumps up to one in five when an immediate family member has the condition too. My grandmother had
4: glaucoma, my mother's got glaucoma and my auntie's got glaucoma. My mum is managing very well with that. My auntie, on the other hand, is on an extreme level who is almost legally blind from glaucoma. And knowing that I've been very conscious of making sure that I, my daughter gets tested regularly She's 21 now and has also been diagnosed with glaucoma just a few months ago.
5: We used to think that you had to have high pressure in the eye or high intraocular pressure to get glaucoma. But now we know differently.
2: There are three primary risks for glaucoma in glaucoma patients. So this is age. It's predominantly an age-related disease. There's genetics, it's a highly heritable disease, and there's high intraocular pressure. So this is the pressure in the front of your eye, which you might be prescribed eye drops for. Unfortunately, the only treatments that we have in the clinic address managing intraocular pressure. So this can be the eye drops that you would get from your optometrist or your ophthalmologist, or it could be surgery that you could have as well.
5: This is Pate Williams.
2: I'm an associate professor of neurobiology at Karolinska Institutet and St. Eric's Eye Hospital in Stockholm, Sweden.
5: Pete's been a research collaborator of mine. He's one of the key experts in this space. In normal ageing, we'll all lose a bit of our vision every single year.
2: It's a very small percentage, and our brain does a very good job at filling in the gaps. So most of us will end our lives with very functional vision.
5: But this all falls apart when you get glaucoma, meaning that some people will spend a significant portion of their lives with poor vision and legal blindness.
2: And so what we've been interested to understand what are both the early and late mechanisms that drive disease. So if we can target early disease, we can hopefully give glaucoma patients vision for a much longer part of their life so that they end their life with relatively functional vision. They can drive their car, work, play with their grandkids. And this is, this is not only good for the individual, but it's good from a healthcare uh, and an economic perspective as well to have people that, that are able to interact with society to work and be with their families.
5: So aside from eye pressure, what else do we now know about what's happening in the eye for us to get glaucoma?
2: One of the most important things that we identified is this progressive loss and dysfunction of mitochondria. So mitochondria, you you hear these as the the powerhouse of your cells. They drive energy production, among other things, in in the neuronal cell. And retinal ganglion cells, these cells that I mentioned earlier, are very highly bioenergetic. So they use a lot of energy. They're always on until you turn them off.
5: And this is where NAD comes in, or nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, for those interested in its full name. NAD is an essential molecule for life on Earth, and it's found in all of our living cells. One of its key roles is to help generate energy in mitochondria for our cells to keep working.
2: The fact that you have a brain that functions is because you have lots of NAD, and you've maybe heard this already in the news as the longevity molecule. It's very, very important for neuronal health.
5: And Pete, along with his collaborators, found that as we got older, our eyes make less NAD and therefore less energy for our retinal ganglion cells. This makes them more vulnerable to injury. And that's what we think might be happening to drive glaucoma aside from eye pressure alone.
2: Could we simply put more NAD back into the system and prevent these retinal ganglion cells from dying during glaucoma and identify that nicotinamide is actually low in the blood of glaucoma patients as well? So not only is age and high intraocular pressure a risk factor, low NAD or low nicotinamide might also be a risk factor in human patients as well.
5: Neurons, like our eyes retinal ganglion cells, mainly keep their NAD levels up via a recycling loop that uses a form of vitamin B3 called nicotinamide to become NAD. Pete's team found feeding mice nicotinamide protected them from nerve damage in glaucoma.
2: Low NAD or low nicotinamide might also be a human patients as well.
5: Here in Melbourne at the Centre for Eye Research Australia, I co-led the world's first randomised controlled trial on nicotinamide. What we need to work out now is whether nicotinamide can prevent vision loss in the long term. As an Australian researcher studying a form of vitamin B3, you can imagine the amount of questions I get about our favourite source of B3, Vegemite.
2: Nicotinamide is very available in diet, for example, in things like red meat, fish, poultry, brown rice, nuts and seeds. But we needed to give it here at doses that we would call super physiological doses, so doses that you wouldn't get in your diet, doses that would be a medical dose, not a dietary dose. We're not talking about jars of Vegemite, we're talking about bathtubs of Vegemite to get this level of vitamin B3 into your system.
5: The form of vitamin B3 in Vegemite is actually niacin. And unfortunately for Aussie breakfast lovers, it has minimal involvement in making this protective NAD molecule for nerve cells.
2: For glaucoma patients that are listening, the only molecule that we have tested all the way through from animal models to a clinical trial is nicotinamide.
5: We still need to finish this clinical trial before we can say whether nicotinamide should be routinely taken. But this is potentially the first treatment that we'll have available that targets the health of the retinal ganglion cells directly. Because nicotinamide supplements are already available on the market, this makes for an affordable and accessible treatment for people to access around the world to be used together with our current treatments. Fei Emma.
4: I'm hoping that eventually we can find a cure, a treatment, anything that'll help all of us because it's not just I think the most important thing that I've identified is that it's not just the elderly who are diagnosed with glaucoma. It can happen to anybody at any age. And I think more awareness needs to be brought to that because it does affect your day-to-day life.
0: Fei Emma, who has glaucoma, finishing off that story from Dr Flora Hugh from the Centre for Eye Research Australia, one of the ABC's top five scientists for 2022.
1: High blood pressure is one of the most toxic risk factors for heart attacks, strokes, kidney damage, dementia, premature ageing and certainly premature death. So bringing your blood pressure down if it's raised is incredibly important because it does reduce those risks. If you've only mildly raised blood pressure, then controlling your salt and alcohol intake, reducing your weight, eating a more plant-based diet and getting in moderate exercise 40-5 minutes to an hour most days of the week can help, but not in everyone and often medications are needed because the pressure either doesn't come down or is too high in the first place. A question which we've raised on the health report in the past though is how intensively should your doctor treat you to get your blood pressure down to as near normal levels as possible? For the most part, intensive treatment does work, but a recent study which has done a long-term follow-up of people who were on a trial of intensive blood pressure control has had disappointing results. Professor Bruce Neal is Executive Director of the George Institute in Australia and a leading clinical trialist of blood pressure treatment. Welcome back to the Health Report, Bruce. Thanks, Nolan. Tell us about that original trial and its findings for the length of time that it was followed up.
6: Yeah, so what they did in the original trial is took about 9,000 people, and they assigned half of them to go for the, the regular blood pressure target, which is less than 140 millimetres systolic, and the other half to go for a much more intensive target of around 120, less than 120 uh, millimetres systolic. Um, they managed to not quite reach those targets, but they got a big difference between the two, and what they found was that it produced um, quite striking reductions in your risks of having uh, a stroke, a heart attack heart failure and even premature death
1: and beyond just standard blood pressure therapy in other words that gap between the just doing your best and doing exceptionally well created that difference
6: yeah absolutely so going for that lower target which we always suspected was going to be um, beneficial turned out absolutely to be so in everyone? Uh, Yeah, it was pretty, um, I mean, the study was of a a, a limited size, but as far as we could tell, uh, we looked in different groups of people, older, younger men, women, people with and without different types of diseases, and it did look to be a pretty constant
1: effect. So tell us about this follow-up study. Yeah, so what we we
6: often do with with trials is we we have that initial period um, where people are intervened on, and then the, the trial stops, the intervention stops, And we're interested to know if the benefits that we saw during the study um, persist, whether they have a a legacy effect. So we follow the people uh, for a prolonged period after the closure of the trial, record the events um, in the same way that we did during the trial. And we look to see uh, if those differences persist, if they get bigger or if they come back together.
1: And just before we give the punchline here, I mean, there has been a theory for some time is that if you really intensively treat high blood pressure, can you get, because what happens with high blood pressure is the muscle in your arteries, it, it gets thicker and your arteries become stiffer. And if you treat it, maybe the muscle in the blood vessels retreats a bit and the mus- and the arteries become more relaxed. And therefore, you might be able to reduce your blood pressure, dose, uh, trump tre- treatment or get rid of it altogether.
6: Yeah, I mean, there, there was a sort of um, a hope um, that uh, uh, if you if you treated people for a certain period of time, this effect might persist even if you took the, the treatment away, because you were changing something that was sort of fundamental to the to the vasculature in your body and that that would produce a sustained reduction um, in your risk of strokes, heart attacks and the like.
1: So hit us with the findings on the follow up for nine years. Yeah, so um,
6: I mean, they were a little disappointing. Um, what they found was that uh, um, the, uh, the benefits accrued during those first three years uh, disappeared by the time you got out to seven or eight years um, of of follow-up um what that means is so
1: and before you go on and was that related were they still on the intensive therapy or they'd gone off it
6: no, so so they'd basically gone off it. so what we saw if we so we looked at the um the risks of stroke and heart attack uh, for the first few years, saw that difference. we then looked at the risks of stroke and heart attack uh, for the subsequent five five and a half years, I think it was, and the differences in the risks uh, for stroke and heart attack uh, uh, went went away but um the 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 interesting observation was that during the Active intervention period, there was this 15 millimeter or so difference between blood pressure uh, in the two randomized groups. But during the follow up period after the intervention had stopped, quite as you would expect, that difference uh, disappeared um, and so did the benefit that, uh, that went with it.
1: And were they able to examine um, if, if they would separate people out according to their treatment? In other words, whether they were still on the treatment or not and according to their blood pressure level?
6: Yeah, so they had um, limited data um, on follow-up blood pressure levels and follow-up treatments because they they didn't have the money and the resource that they had during the initial period to um, to do the intervention. So you, you always end up with a with a bunch of uh, uh, questions about why did this um, why did this stop working? But almost certainly the reason why you didn't get the blood pressure reduction is that once you stopped intervening intensively in that group of people, they stop taking um, as many blood pressure medications. They're less adherent. Uh, They don't get seen by their doctor as much. They don't get prescribed
1: as much. So the reason for this, presumably, is that what blood pressure treatment does is lower your blood pressure rather than change the cause of the high blood pressure.
6: Yeah, certainly over the two or three year period that the initial study was done, um, it doesn't look as though that produced any of those sort of hoped for um, sustained changes in the the vasculature that would lead to that long-term protective effect.
1: Now, this study presumably changed the practice of general practitioners to more intensive therapy. It's not necessarily depressing for them because if they keep at it, you'd assume that the benefits maintain itself.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that is the key message from this study is that you know, if you want to get sustained benefits from intensive blood pressure reduction, you have to continue to, to intervene in an intensive way. The, the challenge is that that's difficult, um, it's resource intensive, and it requires a different model of care uh, to that that we currently have.
1: And what would that look like, that model of care? Well, I think there's a, there's a number
6: of different ways that you could um, that you could approach it. Um, one of the, the ways that we're particularly interested in is the idea of low-dose combination poly-pills. So, one of the challenges with getting your blood pressure down is that you often have to take two, three, or four medicines. Each of them comes uh, in a in a separate tablet. Uh, it comes with a, a separate set of instructions. If you can put all of those together in a single tablet, you can greatly simplify the prescription process for the doctor and also the practicalities of taking it uh, for the patient.
1: And just finally, uh, if you're you're reducing your blood pressure just with standard blood pressure treatment, you're still going to get a benefit in terms of reduction. It's just you're not going to get the super reduction you get with intensive care.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've... uh, for a long time, been progressively lowering the the thresholds, the targets for for blood pressure. When we did the very first trials, 40, 50, maybe even 60 years ago now, the target was less than 160. Um, We did more trials. It came down to less than 150, more trials, less than 140. And now, in fact, most recently, we have a trial from China suggesting that a target of 110 might actually be where we really want to get to.
1: Gosh. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Norman. Professor Bruce Neal, the Executive Director of the George Institute Australia.
0: In the lead-up to the holidays is a line that crops up almost every year, the idea that rates of suicide increase around Christmas and New Year. However, a group from the University of Pennsylvania have pointed out that this is a myth, at least in the US, and their recent research shows that this line is perpetuated in media coverage, Norman, we're part of the media. Let's help put the record straight. This is U.S. data, but what do we know about the trends in Australia?
1: So, just briefly, the the, the, the U.S. the U.S. study, a study of the media coverage versus the actual people who died by suicide, and found that the low that the Christmas period was actually a low period, and yet the media persisted in in promoting this, or in a sense, promoting this as a high risk period. So, we've been looking at the uh, at the trends in Australia. and There's a mixed picture in Australia, actually, in terms of this, because the data are not necessarily as good as you'd think. There's a bit of a delay before it comes in. But a group of researchers um, have for the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare have looked at the data between 2007 and 2018 and beyond. And what they found in general, although there are exceptions in some years, is that the highest rate of people taking their lives by suicide are in January and February with the lowest rates from April through to July. And if you compare... Um, January to um, say June, there are one point fewer four fewer deaths per day in June compared to January. So we do seem to have um, uh, an increased rate during the uh, during the holiday period here. And we've spoken to Lifeline, and Lifeline say this is their 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 most difficult and busiest period for people who are in distress for all sorts of reasons, loneliness. Uh, cries for help, uh, relationship issues, and so on. So it is an important time. And if you are feeling that uh, you need help, then phone Lifeline or to get some counseling.
0: Lifeline's number is thirteen eleven fourteen, And I think it's important to acknowledge that suicide's a tragedy, kind of no matter when in the year it happens, but these media messages uh, need to align with the data.
1: They do indeed. And that's the health report for this week. And uh, next week we go into our summer season of the best of the health report. And we've got some important news for the new year, but we'll give it back to you then. Meantime, have a great
0: Christmas. Oh, you're so good at stoking anticipation, Norman. We'll see you next time. See you then.